Hello, and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. Today, we are joined by Matt Singh. Matt, welcome. Please introduce yourself and explain to our listeners who you are. Thank you, Martin. Yes, my name's Matt Singh, and I'm the founder of Number Crunch and Politics, which is a non-partisan polling and elections consultancy, mostly focused on the UK and doing things such as polling and other sorts of statistical analysis. Fantastic. Perfect person to join us. Welcome as well to my long-time collaborator, Steve. Welcome, Steve. How are you doing? Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks, Martin. Excellent. All right, let's get into it. So first, Matt, can you give us your overview of where we are in politics in the UK at the moment? What is it in particular that people are aware of? What do they care about? And how important is the sort of day-to-day business of politics to most people? I think the most important point to make about the day-to-day business of politics and relatedly the other things about what people know about and care about is that people are generally aware of and interested in all, all of the sorts of things that we in political circles talk about far less than any of us are. Um, quite often the things that may be very, very big in, in, in the Westminster bubble or any of the sort of broader bubbles around that will typically not register to anything like the same extent. Now, sometimes things, particular things will cut through particular stories and, and, and the like, but they tend to be the exception rather than the rule. Things people generally care about, whether people say it or not, there's a very strong record of leadership and economic uh, performance, economic rating being very strong predictors of how people vote, how general election results turn out. Um, They're not a perfect predictor, but they do tend to be very, very strong. And then running through both of those things is the issue of competence. And so competence obviously is part of uh, leadership and the leader's personal rating, both in absolute terms and relative to the the main opponent. So talking about the the two, the, the prime minister and leader of the opposition here. And yeah, those are the main drivers. Now, recently we've had basically a few years where there's been sort of one thing going on. It was most of the time it was Brexit this year or this summer, at least it's been about Corona. Now Brexit's sort of starting to, to come back. But yes, in terms of major news stories cutting through, we have had some, some major news stories, very big news stories. Yes, the, even in those cases, the extent to which the detail cuts through um, is far, far lower than, far, far less than is often assumed by those of us who, who watch politics regularly. Brilliant. Well, then let's go on to some of the particular issues that might or might not be sort of prominent in politics at the moment. And I'd like to get first your sort of overview of what people think about some of these issues, but then secondly, about where a middle ground, a centre ground can be on some of the issues such as economics, culture wars, patriotism, and what's begin to rear its ugly head again is Brexit. So can you give us a sort of overview and... Uh, an insight into your analysis of where the centre ground might be? In general, the, the way that we tend to think about politics, certainly in a sort of post-EU um, referendum and post, or not, not post the election of the Trump world, rather than thinking about everything in terms of the traditional left-right axis, so the, the economic left-right axis, so the the the, the debate over the size and the role of the state and all of the sorts of things that, that go along with that. We, we've now got the second axis, which is the cultural axis, whether you are socially liberal, whether you're socially conservative. And of course, whereas the former, the formerly dominant left-right axis was very heavily correlated with social class, now the, 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 the class divide, as it were, so traditionally occupational uh, social class, whether you were blue collar or white collar worker or, or, or from blue collar or white collar household now things are much more dominated by education so whether you have higher education or not that's that's a much stronger determinant of where you are on this where people tend to be on this this cultural axis so so if you think about it in terms of 
two axes. So left, right, broadly corresponds to Labour Conservative and Social Liberal Social Conservative broadly corresponds to Remain and Leave. In general, if you ask people, um, and this has been the case over a long, long time, because we have a number of these academic studies that have have asked people over a long, long time. In general, the centre, the, the median voter, the centre of gravity of public opinion on economic issues tends to be to the left of where the sort of political middle ground often is, where where policy tends to be. Um, so on things like whether working people get their fair share or whether you know whether the rich should pay high taxes or not those sorts of things the the central gravity as far as the public goes is to the left of where politics essentially is on the other hand on the the cultural axis um, which is where this debate about culture wars comes in is that people tend to be and you can this you can kind of tie together with the patriotism thing because they are that they're not one and the same but in terms of who is in which camp they tend to be very highly correlated um on these sorts of things people will tend to be quite a lot more to the socially conservative side uh so on things like uh, around diversity issues or around the things like the death penalty views on that will tend to be the sort of the public consensus is to the right of where the political consensus is so the interesting thing is you've got this sort of this this slight mismatch between where the public is and where the the politics have been and and so quite a lot of what first the the leave campaign in the EU referendum managed and then subsequently what Boris Johnson managed as as conservative leader and, and, and prime minister um, was really to try and get that economically to the left but socially conservative and, and leave voting block not in not in totality by any sense but certainly disproportionately to swing behind the conservatives and so i think that kind of in a nutshell is how politics maps out now obviously there are there are many many subplots to it and, and obviously you talk about the other parties and particularly in the case of um, Scotland, you've then got another dimension there with the, the constitutional argument. But that, in terms of uh, UK-wide politics, that's pretty much how things map out and, and, and where the middle ground is at the moment. Brilliant. So I, just one question sort of on this before we come on to talk about exactly what you've just spoken about there in action, which is about, is there a culture war in the UK, there arguably or arguably is not perhaps in the US, but it is talked about sort of culture wars. So is there one in the UK either now or is there one brewing, do you think? I think most of the arguments that you, you refer to quite a lot of the time, it's about terminology, about, you know, the, the term culture war and, and you know, the, the connotations of it, of it being like the US, um, whereas others often don't mean in, in the same sense. I mean, I think, I, I guess the, the short answer is yes, of sorts. The longer answer is that we do not have the type of culture war that the US has, where there's this very strong partisan polar, polarization around issues of domestic policy. So if you look at in the US around things like guns and abortion and, and, and that sort of thing, that's not something we have in in the UK. What we do have, and I don't think this is, you know, a, a, a particularly um, controversial take, but what we do have in the UK is that we have a a set of institutions. If you think in terms of the political bubble, the corporate bubble, uh, popular culture, academia, think those sorts of civic institutions that perhaps because of their demographics they're generally urban they're generally working age they are much more university educated than than the population as a whole or or perhaps for for other reasons tend to in terms of the values and often the decisions that they that they make they they tend to reflect a set of values that are much more socially liberal and much more politically correct certainly on issues like uh, issues around diversity and certainly on issues like patriotism 
than most of the people, sort of the, the median elector in, in, in this country. And so you kind of, the, the culture war such as it, is, as it is in the UK, the, from the left it's often trying to, to, to leverage that, that strength to push social change very often further than, uh, or certainly faster than, the sort of the median British adult would like. And then on the right, you've got a party that often sees opportunity for themselves and, and, and danger for the other side in being associated with it. So in a, in a sense, you do have, even though the, the specifics as they are at the moment are quite different from the US, and, and we're certainly not anywhere near as far down that line, you can kind of see the outline of something that's vaguely similar and as for whether we might end up that way, I would not. It, it's very hard to kind of look into the future in that way. But one thing I am trying to look at, and I don't really have an answer on this yet, but just sort of looking at how the US was 20 or 25 years ago to see does it look like the UK now, that I'm sort of, uh, I think the jury's still out on, or my, uh, I, I, I'm still undecided on that, but uh, I certainly wouldn't rule it out. One of the sort of case studies, examples in this, the mess that the BBC got into over Land of Hope and Glory and Royal Britannia about the proms. And do you think the institutions are quite sort of activist then? You talk about them being ahead of the public in certain ways or out of alignment with the public in terms of the sort of median voter, but seemingly pushing social change in a certain direction further or as you say faster than the the public at large are willing to go so do you think these institutions by being activists in this way potentially risk undermining public support for themselves well that certainly seems like the risk i mean in terms of whether or not they're activists i mean i guess that sort of depends on their their motivation um which is kind of i guess a, a question for them and is it simply the fact that they're their demographics are so atypical that you end up getting sort of a bubble and then and, and then and that sort of coming through in in other ways or are they you know there's the other argument that sort of is a the sort of the guilty white men theory so that because a lot of these institutions at the top are very middle class very white very male not very demographically diverse and so they there's the argument that you know perhaps they're overcompensating trying trying to overcompensate um for their their own lack of diversity i mean i i I don't really know what their their motivation is certainly in terms of issues of trust i mean in the broad sense trust in the media has declined over the last couple of decades but it's still holding up okay trusting journalists is low but it always has been i mean yeah in in terms of trust i mean it's quite possible that because most people are not super engrossed in, in politics or activism around these sorts of social issues that even if you don't consider them political, they certainly correlate with people's politics or, or people's positions on these issues correlate with, with how they vote. Because of that, it, it, someone can simultaneously sort of trust these institutions while also thinking that they're out of touch, if that makes sense. It is something that's kind of ripe for for more research i think it's not something that we have a whole lot of data on but i think the so so i think that the narrative that's pushed by some on the right that there's widespread distrust of the whole media and certain parts of the media in particular i think that is overdone but i think at at the same time there is also a a mismatch between some of the thinking there and some of the uh, where the public as a whole um, stands it seems very much in line with what sunder ketwala told us about the unrepresentativeness of the institutions meaning that they are yeah. risk of trying to sort of overcompensate yeah but Steve, did you want to come in yeah i, I did I, I wondered matt if i could take you back a little bit on you described the the sort of economic left right axis and you also talked about a, a cultural axis um yeah. and on the podcast before we've heard of a sort of alternative to left and right axis being referred to as the liberal versus authoritarian axis Yes. Is that the same thing that you're talking about? No, it is It is the same concept. I mean, you can talk about, I mean, some people call it liberal authoritarian, some people call it libertarian authoritarian. They can be slightly different. 
So quite often what happens is when you're doing survey research, you'll have a battery of questions. And these axes are basically sort of derived from these questions that where people tend to give similar answers. So, so not, not something, someone's view on a particular issue in isolation, but more reflecting a, a broader worldview. So obviously you can, where a lot of these debates about terminology often come from is that quite often you're describing a statistical pattern and then trying to apply political science labels to it which is fine but you can often get into these debates about what the labels should be often between people who don't necessarily disagree on the the substance but yes that that is roughly roughly what we're talking about things like i guess uh immigration death penalty some of those would be the sort of i guess wedge issues that you build that scale from is that right yeah i mean there's uh yeah around uh, immigration or death penalty or whether children should be uh, brought up to respect authority that sort of uh, things like censorship although that one is kind of yeah that one is sort of can, can be a a double-edged sword these days but yeah it, it's it's those sorts of issues so you'd build a, a scale based on, on answers to those sorts of questions can I come in on the, um, the example you just gave about censorship, Matt? Because yeah. one thing that's kind of occurred to us is that the new kind of hyper-progressive, sometimes called woke politics, yeah. doesn't necessarily, or, or to sort of the um, unexpert eye, doesn't necessarily fit with what we used to call liberal kind of politics. So on things like censorship and views yeah. other than their own, they're, they're quite forthright and aggressively opposed to that. So... Is, is it right, is it accurate to say that the kind of the new left movement on the social left movement, um, often called woke, do they, do they fit neatly into that liberal scale or, or is there some problems there? I, I think it's a case of the, 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 the way that this scale is, is being defined perhaps needs to change. And so censorship, which used to align very closely with these issues, it would it's now sort of it has also become associated with the the so-called woke movement i i do think that that movement still fits pretty neatly into the scale it's it's the the very uh, liberal or progressive end of that that scale it's just that censorship as a concept and obviously then you have the the the, the difference between state censorship and self-censorship motivated by the risk of or the reality of of being shamed or 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 such like but yeah that that is kind of i think that's something specific to that issue but when you talk about the the ultra um the ultra liberal ultra progressive um side of the cultural axis i think that still fits the that 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 uh, framework pretty well i think it's 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 an issue specific to the censorship thing that's, that's really helpful. Thanks. The other thing I want to ask you about this is, I don't, again, I don't know this question that's really easy to answer, but um, there's a sense that uh, the kind of issues that fit on that scale are quite hard to find compromises on or middle, or middle ground on. Does, does any of your work on public opinion give you a sense of where a middle ground might be? I don't mean just middle ground as in the sort of majority opinion. I mean more what, what's a kind of broad church position? What, what can keep people in some agreement rather than throwing stones at each other i i think you've kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of why this stuff is so potentially so divisive because people can compromise on policy um but it's quite hard to compromise on identity or views towards identity and the fact in particular that, that so many of these things are in the uk at least are not really other than on brexit are not really views that can be when politicians are expressing a view it's sort of to to express their sort of view their values uh, it's not really a policy thing and so quite often it's not finding the compromise is difficult because often a lot of the, the the loudest voices of these issues are the extremes on the issues now they may not necessarily be people who you would describe as as extreme in general but it, you know, the, the vast majority of people do not necessarily get worked up about this stuff in isolation, but you get this sort of drip, drip over a long period. And so, yeah, it is very, very hard to think about um, 
a, a sort of thing that can unite uh, people. I mean, I guess, I guess what ultimately has to happen is that there has to be a sort of a, a, a kind of a, a, a balance on this and a proper conversations about things. I know that's, that's something also that, that, that Sunder's talked about, but actually having conversations, actually thinking about, you know, where should boundaries be drawn? Because quite often when a lot of this anger about, you know, is something racist or not, that, that sort of argument, quite, you know, nearly everyone thinks that racism in principle is wrong. That's not the controversial part. The controversial part is about drawing the boundaries and who should decide on the boundaries and how they should be put, you know, that, that sort of that sort of thing where there really needs to be a lot more of a conversation that's just not happening because as you say people are sort of throwing stones at each other from the two the two the two wings and 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 that goes for a great many other issues too so yeah it is it is quite difficult but uh yeah i mean do we actually want to carry on being as angry as this at each other um probably not so it is something that uh, that everyone needs to think about it's really good that you put it in those terms because that is exactly why we are called no man's land and it has <laughs> like people have dug into two trenches and are just putting their heads above the parapet to fire off at the other side yeah. before sort of ducking down again and actually we want to create the political equivalent of the football match in no man's land in 1914. Oh, next, so let's move on to the political parties and the main sort of actors involved in this. So I want to talk about the Conservative Party first and I want to do this in two parts. So the first part is about some of the um, the detail of the, the policies, the positions that they're taking. And then secondly, we'll come on to trying to understand their strategy. So firstly, the last week or so, uh, we've seen quite a bit of controversy about the government admitting to breaking international law. I'm really interested in your view as to the public reactions to this. So there's been a YouGov poll out, I think, came out today, which we can go back to. But is this just theatrics? Do you think it's a case of signalling to their supporters that the government is trying to fight the good fight before, uh, so establishing that cover before the inevitable climb down, what Professor Rob Ford describes as like a squid using ink as a distraction for a retreat. Do you think that's what motivates the government in this way on this issue? Yes, I think that's the the motivation. I mean, I I don't. I mean, it, it it is quite possible also that they are genuinely serious about it and fully intend to to end the transition without a trade deal. It certainly the, the thinking seems to be to signal to their voters, and I, I think in particular not leave any space to the right on the Brexit issue. So, in, yeah, in terms of what they're actually doing and, and, and how it's being perceived. It is because this thing hasn't cut through completely yet. I mean, there are, when, when you're polling about something that doesn't have the cut through in the way that say the Dominic Cummings thing did, um, when, when you're polling on a, something less salient, you have to, you either have to just ask about it without giving any, further detail in which case you'll get a lot of don't knows. And those are people very often people who, who vote, whose opinions are going to influence the, the next election, but they haven't heard or paid any real attention to the, the story or, or, or formed a view on it. So it can be quite hard to judge from that. And then also the, the alternative is to to give them information about the about what's happened and then ask them questions based on that. The thing is, that's very, very difficult to do in a neutral way. It's quite easy to do it in a biased way because you just spin it as you know, whichever side would, would, would spin it, but trying to do it in a in a way that is neutral is quite difficult. So figuring out where the public is on this is not completely straightforward. However, what we can say is that in general, there's two polls on this and they both suggest that a plurality or majority of people think it's the wrong thing to do. And also that within the two groups of two sides of the two viewpoints on this particular issue, the patterns in terms of party support and everything else are more or less as you would expect. So there's more support coming from Conservatives and, and Leave voters for Boris Johnson on this than, than there is from, from non-Conservatives and Remain voters, pretty much as you'd expect. So, yeah, I think how it matters in the long term is going to hinge a lot more on how this plays out. I think if 
if everything goes smoothly at the end of the transition period, then I, I think this this is the sort of thing that might end up just being a footnote. If it all sort of blows up, then this then becomes part of the and and and, and Brexit and, and the, the post Brexit phase are come to be seen by voters as a disaster. Then this might end up being a big part of the the story. Um, so it does kind of depend on what on what happens next. I think. Now, I just wanted to add some numbers to the point that you made about the sort of polarisation. So from the YouGov poll, which is in the Times today, funded by Best for Britain. So overall, 25% say it's acceptable in response to the question, do you think it is acceptable for the government's plan to break international law? 25% acceptable, 47% unacceptable. 29% don't know. So quite, you know, more people say don't know than say it's acceptable. Yeah. But just want to keep in mind, though, if we just remove the don't knows just for now, 25% overall say acceptable, 47% unacceptable. Conservatives, 52% acceptable, 24% unacceptable. Labour, just 6% acceptable, 74% unacceptable. Remain, 10% acceptable, 74% again unacceptable but leavers 47 percent acceptable 25 percent unacceptable so just like you say very clear stark difference on conservative labor support and on remain and leave support yeah and i just wonder whether i have the jeffrey cox piece today saying that the government should when they've given their word they should keep it even if the consequences are unpalatable in his words. So do you think that someone like that, who is seen as a maybe more in, should we say, sort of political circles than potentially public circles, uh, in sort of wider public support, is there an elite queue? Is he seen as someone who people will have their opinion informed by? And if he says this is the wrong thing to do as a lever, whether he will likely carry people with him, or does he not have the kind of public profile that someone like a Boris Johnson was able to do in the referendum and then after he became Prime Minister with him? I, I don't think Geoffrey Cox necessarily has the, the public profile, but when you, as you say, these are levers and you, you've seen the same thing from people like Michael Howard and, and, and so on. When you think of it that way, that this is something that there's a, there's a split among levers here, that is the sort of thing, assuming it does cut through, which is, is not straightforward, that is perhaps the kind of thing that can, where it can start to, to, to have an effect. But of course, the thing is, because this is, you know, early on in a parliament and there's, I mean, unless something like this ends up, you know, ir- irretrievably splitting the Tories, it, it doesn't look like there's going to be, there's much chance of any, uh, election anytime soon where the public stands on this is perhaps it, it is not it, it is obviously always a consideration in the sense that, that most of these people are going to have to to face the electorate at some point but it's not i i mean how this thing plays out i don't think where the public stand on it is necessarily going to be a uh, is going to be the determining factor in in, in how this this ends up anyway. Um, obviously, if the public do break solidly one way or the other, then that will will, will matter. But as you say, at the moment, it's it's, it's polarised in in a, in a very predictable sort of way. Yes, I mean those those sorts of those sorts of figures are the ones that, if anyone could sort of um, tip the the scales as far as public opinion goes, they are the people that might do it. But I'm not sure that. Uh, even if they did, that would necessarily have any huge effect in the in the short term. All right, so let's just close the section on the Conservatives by getting an, some insight from you into what you think that their strategy is. So you said that most likely this fight over breaking international law is a sort of cover for a forthcoming retreat. But more broadly, what do you think the Conservative strategy is at the moment? I suppose... As you say, we're a long way out from the election, so a governing strategy is different from a campaigning strategy. But can we get some insights into what you think the Conservative Party kind of up to at the moment? Well, it's it, it's interesting. I mean, I guess the big um, strategic question in all of this is is the next election is is Boris Johnson gonna gonna stand again? 
I mean, he certainly seems like he could if he wanted to. Does he, he want to? I, I, I don't know. And if, if not, who would succeed him? And obviously, there's, you know, you can get into all sorts of talk about who that, that might be with, um, with Rishi Sunak's name being mentioned quite often by the, the sorts of people that get excited about leadership, future party leaderships. But yeah, um, what is their actual strategy? I mean, the, the really fascinating thing about this, this parliament is that they were elected on, I mean, you can talk about what manifesto said and this, that and the other, but basically based on the campaign, certainly as the public will see it, their mandate was primarily one or well, two things. One of them was stop Jeremy Corbyn and the other thing was get Brexit done. Now they, they stopped Jeremy Corbyn with the election result and they got Brexit done in terms of the, the, the fact of leaving the EU within what was it? Seven weeks of the election. So with that done, like what is their, what are they actually doing for the, um, the rest of the parliament policy wise? So there is sort of a, uh, I mean, obviously, there's since then Corona's come around, and that's going to certainly in the short term dominate things. But yeah, in terms of the strategy, I mean, they have managed to do, and, and, and Boris Johnson personally gets a lot of credit for this, managed to get a group of voters who, in certainly in uh, over the, the past couple of decades, the Conservatives have been looking at and saying, these people actually agree with us on a lot of things and they're not voting for us. And finally, Brexit turned out to be the wedge issue that was able to sort of break this historic cultural sort of tie between Labour and a lot of its traditional voters. People talk about the Red War, and obviously that was a a key part of it. But I think that slightly overstates the importance of geography because these types of voters may be there disproportionately, but they also exist everywhere they exist in traditional marginals you even get some of them in london but yeah the, these those sorts of voters are the ones in the the quadrant i was, was talking about earlier the economically to the left socially conservative types who many of whom would not traditionally voted for the conservatives and did in december i think their strategy overall is to keep them on side possibly expand the the coalition further but the fact is 45 percent of the great britain vote is a is a winning share in almost any election and so their their strategy has been to to maintain that share and yeah in terms of what they actually do in terms of issues i mean they certainly seem to like these wedge or culture war issues is the current brexit thing a part of that i mean i don't know what their strategy is maybe it is but yeah that is i think what they are trying to do and although labor's made some some progress on that they've still a long way to go so yes i do think that is um, that's what the conservative thinking is at the moment great well perfect time to talk about labor then so you recently wrote something about labor's performance and its strategy and how starm is doing so if you'd like to sort of talk us through that but i also want to include a quote from lord ashcroft that you in fact referred to in something else that you wrote which is, and I quote, as far as many of these former supporters were concerned, the Labour Party they rejected could not be trusted public finances, looked down on people who disagreed with it, was too left-wing, failed to understand or even listen to the people it was supposed to represent, was incompetent, appallingly divided, had no coherent priorities, did not understand aspiration or where prosperity comes from, disapproved of their values, and treated them like fools. Now, current polling has Labour not too far away from the Conservative Party and Starmer, as in some cases overtaken Johnson as the preferred Prime Minister. So how have Labour been able to recover? They seem to have done it quite quickly. So have they managed to do that? And Starmer seems to be good at refusing to walk into elephant traps on Brexit. But how long can he maintain is silence. Well, yeah. So what? I mean, it, it has been quite a roller coaster in terms of the polls, and I think genuinely in terms of public opinion to a to a large extent. So, in the three or so months it took for the the Labour um, leadership contest to take place, in that time, the Conservatives not only had their honeymoon from winning the election, but then Brexit at the end of January, and then the initial part of Corona led to this rally round the flag. And so in our poll for Bloomberg and then subsequently in a couple of other polls, 
the Conservatives were up in the mid-50s and, and 26 points ahead, sort of off the chart. And Starmer took over uh, the start of April when that was pretty much at its... That, that effect was pretty much at its peak. Now, it would be a bit of a stretch to say that the swing from the Conservatives being 26 points ahead to being sort of in the in the single digits, uh, single digit poll leads that they've had in in the recent polls is, is entirely down to him. I mean, the, the first part of it, I suspect, was down to that Tory being a bit frothy, although not to not entirely. Uh, and then you've had other things uh, in the meantime, like the Dominic Cummings thing, which did clearly have um, an effect on the, the polls. There's a lot of the I mean, during a rally around the flag, a party, a governing party will pick up support for a lot of people that wouldn't normally support it. And and the Dominic Cummings thing might have, you know, sort of knocked that back. But nevertheless, Starmer has narrowed the gap uh, even beyond where the, the election result was. And he does seem to be making some progress. Certainly he's made progress in terms of his personal ratings. The party's brand is still lacking his. And the sort of view of the party that's reflected in that passage from from Lord Ashcroft that you read out and this is not just coming from focus groups I've heard I heard from Labour candidates saying that they heard you know words to that effect coming back from the the doorstep and and you know all sorts of other things like you know what one of them actually was was told on the doorstep you've got more Palestinian flags than Union Jacks you know that that sort of thing the not necessarily disagreeing with them, their position, but just the, the their sense of priorities. So I think the, the the big changes have been just basically to junk the the politics of the the last sort of five years and go you know much more towards something that's based on competence rather than taking the getting into knots over issues that tend to divide a Labour coalition. Any a party the centre-left is going to have to have the support of traditional, the traditional working classes and liberal professionals. I mean, that is Labour in the last sort of half a century has, has certainly when it's done well, has tended to be a, um, a coalition of that, that nature. And I think the, the, the one of the most important things Starmer has been doing is avoiding shooting himself in the foot, avoiding these um, these elephant traps, as you put it. And it has been quite notable that uh, he didn't take the bait on statutes. He didn't take the debate, the bait on the trans rights debate. He did not. Uh, in fact, on the, the proms thing, he it was very subtle and very indirect, but he basically he basically took a swipe at the BBC from the right, which, I mean, I think if you're trying to position yourself as a moderate, and obviously from the, the polling, it was very clear that uh, that's where the public was. I think that that made sense. So, yeah, I, I think that the strategy that Storm has been pursuing, and based on the polls are so far been successful, long way still to go, but we can only look at the first sort of, what is it, five months of his his leadership, but he has been trying to get back closer towards that more typical Labour coalition. Now, it's a you know it looks a bit different from the past Labour coalition. It's got probably slightly more ethnic minorities and certainly more graduates, and the working class is not you know sort of working down the mines anymore. But it is more of the sort of coalition that has done that Labour has got votes from in the past, rather than the sort of thing that, that Labour has implicitly been pursuing during the Corbyn era. era. So I, I think, in a nutshell, that's uh, that's what Labour are trying to do. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to ask about the patriotism point. I know you mentioned uh, Union Jacks. Uh, and I wondered, from a sort of polling perspective or from the insights that you have, do you, do you ever feel for the role that patriotism plays for people that, you know, that were saying that they probably had more Palestinian flags than Union Jacks? What does that mean? Is that... Is that something about national identity? Is it something more simple about just are these people people like me? Or do, do we have a sense of that? It's not something that tends to be polled directly. It does tend to be, it's the sort of thing that comes out indirectly, for example. So if you looked at, say, compare the either sort of the Corbynistas or sort of the generally very socially liberal bloc, irrespective of party, and then compare them to the population as a whole, you would find very big differences on things like 
things like Corbyn singing the national anthem or their view of the Queen or things about like the, 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 the row around the proms, those sorts of things. So where you tend to get these, yeah, when you tend to get these wedges on patriotism, they often come up in, in indirectly, the sort of the obvious things about, you know, like waving a flag, that sort of thing. Those are not things that come up in real life. So it's not something that gets polled directly. I wouldn't go as far as say you can never be too patriotic, but in terms of public opinion, I th- I think it would be hard to be seen as sort of too patriotic. Certainly, the, the public is pretty patriotic, and the political classes in the post-war era haven't always been so, or certainly been perhaps a bit squeamish about it. So that's where I suspect the public is. Although, as I say, it's not something that tends to get polled directly. Can I just ask then that you, you talked about competence, talking about Labour. Does the focus on competence mean that moderate politics is on the way back? I don't think it means that in and of itself, because if you think about some of the, I'm thinking particularly around Margaret Thatcher, I think it's probably the best example where she was seen as competent, but she was not seen as a moderate. And, and certainly if you look at the, the vote shares of the, the elections during the, the Thatcher years, the, the conservative vote share was was very, very stable at roughly what it is now, and the rest was divided. So I don't think that competence necessarily equals moderation. But what I would say is that in terms of the Labour strategy, this focus on competence is a sort of a means to that end. So what I mean by that is that by Starmer focusing on this issue of him and Labour being competent and Johnson and the Conservatives not being competent from his point of view, that the what he's trying to do is to focus his side and to you know the the public on something where the on on something where that's not an issue that that divides Labour from its voters or Labour uh, among themselves. That's something you can do when you are talking about competence. But if you're talking about an issue where people, different parts of your coalition do have very different views, you can't. Whereas on competence, I mean, there is very strong consensus around competence that basically governments should govern well. That part isn't, isn't controversial. And obviously him saying um, the Conservatives are not governing well, that's something his party are going to be uh, going to take the same side on. So can, the question of can he keep his silence, I mean, eventually he's going to have to spell out policies, but I think at the, at the or, or spell out in more detail what he would do differently. But I think that in this period where the party is becoming more united than it has been in in the last few years and, 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 and undergoing that change, and the Conservatives are providing him with a lot of ammunition through a series of, of missteps. Certainly it's certainly a lot of voters, even Conservative supporters, would have looked at a number of things in the last few months and, and seen them as as missteps. That's something he can carry on doing reasonably happily for for the time being. Um, I don't know. I mean, you never know what's going to happen. But, yeah, certainly at the, the time at which he has to do something differently, I don't think is yet... I suppose, certainly to me, it seems like it's a case of building up trust, being in the conversation, being building foundation where people are willing to give you the time of day and to listen to you before you then put forward a programme that they can think, well, actually, this guy might actually deliver it because he seems like, you know, a decent kind of guy and sort of knows what he's talking about and wouldn't sort of fly off the handle with some radical craziness in the same way that Corbyn was seen as someone who was both sort of radical, out of touch, and unable to actually deliver, it seems to me. But So I just wanted to move on from the Labour Party and just quickly talk to you about Extinction Rebellion. And I wonder whether, in your experience, there's a sort of centre ground for support on, on one side, support for issues around the environment and uh, the impact of a bad environment on people's health. But on the other hand, the view of making sort of big shows, causing so much disruption, coming from, I think it's fair to say, a fairly narrow constituency, the Extinction Rebellion. So 
what's your view, not only of Extinction Rebellion themselves, but certainly them, but also sort of wider social movements around that? I think certainly in terms of if you actually asked about Extinction Rebellion, I'm not sure that many of the public would know, would, I mean, I suspect a lot of people just would not remember the the, the name, but far more would also perhaps not, um, if they knew the name, they wouldn't, uh, they would have sort of a vague idea of what they're about and, 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 and what type. I mean, I certainly when they've been in the news, they've been in the news, but I'm just saying that the name doesn't necessarily stick i mean certainly in terms of attitudes towards the environment there is certainly when you ask about the environment in the abstract there is certainly a good deal of support from across the the political spectrum i i think on the on the right some of the more sort of climate skeptics i guess you could call them tend to get quite a bit more airtime and column inches than is necessarily the case among conservative voters i mean we did a poll a couple of years ago for Bloomberg and there was a majority among every every major party's voters thinking that measures to protect the environment had not gone far enough or not gone nearly far enough. So yes, I think certainly in the abstract there is support for it. Whether there is support for the practical measures, um, particularly when they may seem to take away things that people like, like cheap flights or you know, have some sort of economic consequence, then then obviously things can be different. But yeah, in terms of the tax, I mean, taxes like that generally are not popular. Now, you can say that they may have worked because they got people talking about them. That's a whole, I'm not sure that's necessarily always the case. But certainly in terms of what people say when you ask them directly about these sorts of direct tactics, they are generally not popular, no matter how much people would agree with the protesters on the, the issue. So yeah, I think it is kind of... Um, uh, a split, as you say, between the the issue in the abstract and the, the specifics. So to what extent do movements like Extinction Rebellion move the Overton window, as it's called, in their direction? How much do they make it more acceptable to to think radically, for example, on climate change? That's an interesting um, question because uh, certainly it's kind of like a make a good PhD thesis I think that uh, that sort of question I mean it, it is quite difficult to test because when you look at public opinion shifting and you know what are the sort of what are the acceptable range of positions for a, for a mainstream party to take the Overton window it is quite these sorts of things generally tend to happen somewhat slowly over time unless there's a big event something specific happening i think that's perhaps that that may be more the case for things like things like racism uh, and and what's happened this year i think with the the environment in certainly in terms of what cuts through to the public there are it's much more series of, of smaller events so in terms of what difference these sorts of things can make they it is quite hard to disentangle that from everything else that tends to happen. So the actual issue itself and the media coverage of the issue itself, what position political parties take, what position other people take, you know, civic society and, and, and so on. It is quite difficult to disentangle all of those things to try and pin down what it is that has driven public opinion over quite often over a long period of time people are not good at always remembering what views they've had in in, in the past and certainly they're not even good at rationalizing their views uh, their the, the reasons for voting sometimes never mind changing their their view on a something that's a, a question of opinion rather than fact it would be very, it's a very interesting sort of it's an interesting political science question also an interesting methodological question in terms of how you'd go about testing that i mean certainly in terms of the the potential for the impact obviously there is a there is a you know it's obvious how these sorts of things could affect people but on the other hand there's also the the fact that as um one of you said that you know extinction rebellion is not necessarily representative in 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 many ways and also that the way um, the fact that a lot of people who get involved in this sort of activism are very much the the highly politically engaged, 
and, and are not, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily cut through more broadly. So, yes, I think it's something that would be interesting to, to try to test. I'm not sure how. Uh, so I'm not really sure I have an answer in terms of what effect it has. I suspect it, it has a far smaller effect in, in, in reality than it does on, say, on, on, on Twitter. But it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a pretty hard thing to test, I think. Right, well, let's get on to our final question. Who's going to win the US election? <laughs> well, I mean, we don't know for certain. We can only look at the what is out there and, and what is what we can say based on what we do know. And there's, as always, there are, there are a series of different models that try to take, uh, mostly based in some way around polls and sometimes with other things added on um, and different ways of looking at past data and how things might evolve. I mean, basically, in all of the, pretty much all of the, the models and even now the betting markets have Joe Biden as favourite. So he's he's currently ahead in the polls by, on most polling averages, about seven point six to eight points among likely voters. And so, so call it seven points. Now, the Electoral College is, does give Donald Trump a bit of an advantage, probably two to three points, probably about the same as, as advantage that he had last time. But where things are, you are, however you cut it, Biden is, is favoured at the moment. Now, in terms of how that might change, so basically there are two, two ways that Biden might not win. One of them is that the polls shift against him. Uh, the other is that the polls are wrong. Now, on the, the, the second point, the polls in the US do not hab- have a sort of habitual skew. Like we used to talk about the shy Tory factor in the UK and polls normally understating the Conservatives a bit. You can debate whether that's still the case in general in the UK or not, but it's never really been a case in, in, in the US. The polls are often a bit off, but they tend to be sort of randomly in both directions. There isn't any overall plan. So, so there isn't really any reason other than uh, among partisans, I think there's a bit of thinking, you know, maybe the polls are still off in certain states like they were last time. And you can kind of see the logic because Trump supporters, a lot of them, will think polls are a conspiracy or rigged or part of the you know liberal media machine. Democrats will be perhaps nervous about a repeat of last time. And the media talking about it often tends to dwell on what happened last time because that's sort of the most obvious thing, even if it's not. The data doesn't suggest that that's any more likely than, than the reverse. But yeah, so if we think that the... We don't, wouldn't expect the polls to be a bit off, but we don't know which way... And in terms of swinging towards the public opinion swinging, I mean, on the one hand, we know people are polarised, which means things are stable. That's good for the favourite, which is Biden. Uh, we also know that we're in a very uncertain and unusual time that isn't really comparable to anything that we've had in the past. And when we talk about the past, we've only really had a few elections since we've had modern opinion polling uh, so we don't really have a whole lot of historical data to go on. Certainly when you think about statistical modelling exercises, and if you have a background like mine in financial markets, you're used to multiple data points a second. Here we're talking about one data point every four years. So the, the probability of a low probability event is often quite difficult to model, and so it's not really that surprising that different different modellers have come up with different models and therefore different results different forecasts but yes however you cut the the cake biden is favorite at the moment the question is what chance is there of an upset my instinct is to to err on the side of uncertainty simply because with this situation that we find ourselves in with covid19 and not just its direct effect on politics, but on on economics, on society, uh, on all sorts of other things, and you know the logistics of the election, and all of the other things around the election, with sort of the controversy over postal voting and and possible voter suppression, things like that. There are quite a lot. I, I would say there are far more reasons than usual to say we're not quite sure how this is going to play out. So I, well, I would say Biden is favourite. I would 
not say he's anything close to to being a certainty. I think the degree, the level of uncertainty will shrink as we go through the next, what is it, about seven weeks or so. But yes, yeah, certainly for the time being, and even up to the day before, depending how close the polls are, uh, we're not going to know exactly what's ha- what's uh, what's going to happen. There's one thing I just wanted to, to pick up. So if Biden is six to eight points ahead, let's say seven, and Trump has a likely electoral college advantage of two to three points. So obviously you're looking with polling, you're looking at the, the whole population. So do you think that the chances of Biden winning the popular vote but losing the electoral college as Clinton did, does that have to be sort of factored in as a separate thing that you're looking at? On the one hand, we're looking at who wins the election overall, or on one hand, you're looking at who wins the popular vote overall. So how do the sort of pollsters, the people who analyse this, separate out those two different things to be able to sort of whether you do you weight it in a certain way that people in sort of the swing states are weighted more heavily to try to counteract that potential difference between the popular vote and the electoral college. The way that pollsters in, in the strict sense, if you're just talking about people who, who only do polls, the national polls for the whole of the US will only be for the popular vote, which is why in 2016 the national polls were basically right they said that clinton was going to win the popular vote by three points she actually won it by two points being within a one point on the margin is actually better than average accuracy but the national polls basically their job is to to measure the the national popular vote there's state polls and in the u.s you get far more of these state polls particularly in the the competitive states the swing states than you would get constituency polls in the uk so far more polling in ohio than Nuneaton, for example yeah Nuneaton's probably not the best example but yeah sticking st- sticking with the the u.s yeah you, you get you get these state polls and so as far as pollsters are concerned that's traditionally at least in terms of what pollsters have done that's as far as it goes where it gets uh, goes beyond that is the forecasters the model builders who who are the the nate silver types who are using polling from elsewhere to build a model of how the the us is going to behave and very often a lot of that's going to be down to driven by state polls because what's happening in the swing states because of their demographics and, and, and various other factors can sometimes behave not you know totally in a, in a in a vacuum from what's happening in the rest of the country but they can be different enough that you know an electoral college a, a two to three point electoral college last time might not necessarily be the same this time so when they're building models quite often they will use the uh, the swing state polling and other data like the demographics of the states they don't have polling for to try to, to to fill in the gaps as it were and some of these models are getting getting more and more complex and then the other uh, approach which is what pollsters and others sometimes are doing are these new poll-based uh, multi-level regression and post-stratification or mrp models which basically take a very big sample of polling and instead of trying to make it representative in the normal way they use it as the basis for a regression model that then incorporates a load of census data and and other very high quality data to try to build a model of the entire electorate and that's done geographically that's done down to to a lower level even than the state it's down to sort of congressional districts or uh, county level and then you can aggregate those back up to get state totals and also obviously the, the national total. So, yes, when, you, when you're talking about polls of the whole of the US, you're really talking about the popular vote when you're talking about polls in the traditional sense. But the, the modelling has gone quite a way beyond that. So when you are looking at the, the electoral college or looking at the, the result of the election, it's the electoral college you need to... To think about and so the the, the national polls if it, it may be a convenient shorthand and certainly if one candidate's winning by seven or eight points then then the electoral college isn't going to be skewed to that extent 
well, it, it, certainly for people who are not used to following the US, it is it is worth remembering that um, that it's not the popular vote that, that decides things. Great. Well, Matt, thank you so much for giving up your time to us. That has been absolutely fascinating. I've had a really good, uh, I've really enjoyed myself. So hopefully our listeners will as well. And hopefully you've enjoyed it as well. So absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Steve, as always, thank you very much for joining me. Been really good. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Matt. Great. And thank you very much to everyone for listening. This has been the No Man's Land podcast, and we hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you.